Well, welcome, church. It's nice to gather again, isn't it, on our refresh, our midweek devotional. We're uh, still working our way through Mark's gospel, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 8. We'll probably finish the chapter today, and I have uh, all three or four incidents from this chapter that I just want to highlight, looking at the ministry of Jesus. So let's pick it up at Mark 8 starting at verse 22, the healing of the blind man. Get a Bible and a cup of coffee, whatever you want, and let's just study together for a few minutes. Mark 8, 22 to 26, the healing of the blind man. So this is the first point we're going to study. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. 25. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. So this is the second time. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So if you remember last Wednesday, even the same way Jesus healed the deaf man in uh, Mark 7, 31 to 37, Jesus does the same thing here. He takes this blind man away, away from the hustle and bustle of the village, all the prying eyes, the stares of the crowd, so he takes him away, 823. But there's something else about this miracle that I think is so interesting. It's unique. It is the only account, as far as I know, the only account in the ministry of Jesus where his first touch, his first attempt, doesn't bring complete healing. And you have to ask yourself, now, if you, were, if you were just concocting a gospel about Jesus, making stuff up, is that the kind of story you would include? That Jesus lays his hand, clearly with the intent to heal this person, and he's not completely healed. Is that the kind of miracle you would, you would uh, include in your record? And I don't think it is. And so you have something that argues just for the, the credibility and the honesty of the gospel account. I just see two really important things here in this healing of the blind man. A, Jesus recognized that the man wasn't healed until he could see completely. Let, let, me, just, let me just say this. Uh, there's such a teaching point here. Jesus didn't ask this man to, you know, sort of confess his way into healing when he wasn't fully healed. Jesus didn't come and ask him to pretend. He doesn't say, well, if you, just, if you just say the right thing or keep your faith anchored in me, really, you're, 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 you are healed. You just, you just aren't seeing it yet. There's, there's nothing like that. Jesus, uh, he didn't view this man's honest admission as some kind of a point of weakness or some kind of a point of failure. He didn't think that, wow, here's a guy that's just demonstrating lack of faith. 
And that leads into the second point, B. Jesus is so gracious, he did nothing to put blame or condemnation on this man. Here's what I love about this account. It doesn't fit today's model very well in terms of miracle accounts that you'll see in in different kinds of settings. In that Jesus does nothing, absolutely nothing, to try and explain what's wrong. There's no attempt to account for the fact that, well, he wasn't healed completely with the first touch. Jesus doesn't feel there's any explanation necessary. There's no blame assigned. There's no theology developed. Just, do you see? Well, I, I kind of see, but boy, not, not very well. And there's no explanation after that. Jesus just touches him again. We should learn not to try and be more spiritual than than Jesus. He didn't feel any need. There's no accounting for why some miracles are instantaneous and some miracles might be gradual and over time. Jesus feels no need to concoct a theology to explain all of that. And I think there's something beautiful in that. Let's move on. Here's the second account in Mark 8, Mark 8, 27 to 33. And you have Peter's famous confession of of Christ. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples. So Jesus initiates this, this conversation. Who do the people say that I am? Apparently, it mattered to Jesus. And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. I want to talk about that in just a minute. One of the prophets. Jesus doesn't seem happy with any of those answers. 29. And he asked them, but but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Verse 30. And he, that's Jesus, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's strange. 31, and he began, so this is, he's just beginning now, beginning, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and killed. He's just starting to teach them this now. And after three days, rise again. So there's the resurrection. And he said this plainly. Mark's, Mark wants to highlight that because for quite a while, the disciples don't seem to get it, and Mark wants us to understand it's not because Jesus didn't, he wasn't straight with them, he was. They just weren't prepared to hear it. He said this to him plainly, 32, and Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, Peter rebuking Jesus. 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now it comes back. And said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, let's just pull out some of the obvious points here. A, Jesus made human opinion about himself the central concern of his ministry. That's in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Jesus starts this. Jesus initiates it. But it's not driven by by ego. It's driven by the fact that 
Jesus knows people will have to be right about his identity if, if his coming that he talked about, his death and resurrection, his kingdom grace, if his kingdom grace is going to reach their lives, it's dependent upon their understanding who he actually is. They had to be right about that. Notice it, it's his person. The question isn't, well, what do people think of my miraculous powers? What do people think about me walking on the water or feeding the 5,000? Not what do people think of my miracles or, or even how do you think people like my parables and my teaching? The real issue is, who do the people say I am? His, his person, his identity. And that, by the way, that is still... Uh, the key issue today for the church, the church's message, uh, the ministry of the gospel, the message we take to the nations, it all settles on who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Matthew's account, Matthew's account makes, makes our Lord's response to Peter even a little bit uh, more vivid. It's in Matthew 16, 17 to 19. So Jesus is, is uh, answering Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is not Peter being the first pope. This is Peter's confession, his understanding of who Christ was. And on this rock I will build my church, 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I, and whatever you bind on earth, I'll give you keys of the kingdom, 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A lot of people read this and they think it's some kind of an account about binding demons. And it, it, it really isn't primarily about that. It has to do with recognizing who Jesus is. Entrance of kingdom grace. Or, 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 the beginning of judgment, they, they both hinge on this recognition of who Jesus is. That's the key thing. Everything entering my life and everything not entering my life of eternal worth hinges on getting the identity of Jesus right. B, I think this is important. I said we'd come back to it when we read the account. It is totally inadequate to list Christ alongside of even the greatest prophets. I get that in verse 28. So who do people say I am? 28, and they told him John the Baptist, or they say Elijah, one of the prophets. So, so clearly Jesus is, is looking for a different answer. He's looking for a better answer than just one of the prophets. That is a very common um, portrayal of Jesus in all sorts of false religions and cults. Jesus is a prophet, the greatest prophet. Jesus will have none of it. He, he's not equal to the prophets. Prophets point to someone else. Jesus points to himself. See, Peter said, 29, Jesus was the Christ. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' second name, Jesus Christ. 
It's the Greek word for Messiah, which, which in the Hebrew means uh, anointed or anointed one. So prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. You know accounts in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings all anointed to fulfill certain roles. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Just, just really quickly, um, he fulfills all those roles. As, as prophet, Jesus is the final revelation to whom all the other prophets pointed. You can read about that in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. As priest, Jesus accomplished the complete redemption for sins that all of those Old Testament priestly ministries with all the sacrifices, they were all looking forward to the great coming high priest that the writer of Hebrews talks about, Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. And as king, Jesus comes from the line, the lineage of David, the fulfillment of David's throne being set up, a kingdom that would never end. We have those great Christmas verses, Isaiah 9, 7, which says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There's going to be a descendant of David who will rule eternally as king. Jesus fulfills prophet, priest, king, the ultimate anointed one, the Christ. D. Notice that Jesus, in verse 30, he, he commands his disciples to remain silent about who he was. So, Peter's confession is an accurate one, and yet Jesus still wants them to be quiet about this. And the reason becomes clear in the following verses. In, in 31 to 33, Jesus outlines the way in which his kingdom is going to come. He's going to be rejected by the leaders. He's going to be killed. There'll be his physical resurrection. So, so Peter and the rest of the group uh, probably, Mark says, even though he told them that plainly, they, they didn't get it. Peter actually rebukes Jesus just for saying these things. So because they don't have the message right yet, because they don't, they don't understand, Jesus is just beginning, Mark said, to tell them these things about his future death. And because they don't get it, Jesus doesn't want them spreading a gospel that they don't even understand. And so he tells them that. Okay, point number three. In Mark 8, 34 to 38, and there's a perfect sequence here. Jesus turns from his cross, his coming death, and he starts talking to them about their cross, their participation. It's in 8, 34 to 38. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, so he's saying this to everybody, if anyone, this isn't just the 12, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, losing it has to do with taking up the cross, he will save his life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? 
For what can a man give in return for his life? 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me, this is the taking up of the cross. We sang it Sunday in, in, our, in our Sunday morning service here in the sanctuary, the old rugged cross. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Now, Jesus makes it clear, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. No one's going to be ashamed of Jesus. Miracles. It's the things he said on all sorts of subjects, his words. They're hard to hold. They're embarrassing in the middle of a adulterous and sinful generation, 38. There's, there's pressure to conform to the culture, not to adhere to the words of Jesus. And taking up the cross means I'm not ashamed to follow Christ in everything that he said. That's where I plant the flag. That's where I live my life couple of things here, okay? A, nobody could follow Jesus on his or her own terms. That's in 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Primarily, that has to do, you know, we're not, we're not at the place in our country where people are, are being uh, executed for their faith, but there is an enormous pressure you can talk about love one another and the golden rule and some things from the Sermon on the Mount. You can, you can do that, but there's things Jesus talked about that are culturally just unacceptable, and every Christian has to decide, am I ashamed of what Jesus said about this? Because he says, you're ashamed of me, I, I will be ashamed of you when I come again. B, the person who will deny himself can't ultimately lose. I see that in 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's taking up the cross, bearing the shame and reproach. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The reason we're told you, you'll save your life ultimately is because it doesn't feel like it in a lot of difficult situations. You feel like the loser. You feel like the unaccepted one. You feel like the persecuted one. You feel like you don't fit in with the dominant cultural voice. But Jesus says, no, no, you, you, you can't lose this way if you follow me. See, the person who doesn't follow Jesus on his terms, even when they're costly, cannot, cannot win in the long run. I see that in 36 and 37. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? So all the gains... Apart from following Jesus, all the gains you think you have, they slip away quick enough. So it's only, it's only in taking up the cross, taking the stand, laying down the, the, the life of acceptance and fitting in with the culture. It's laying that down. Ultimately, that's the only road to eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. And D... We get this reminder, we don't hear about it a lot, the issue of following Jesus and remaining true to him, it, it's only one you can postpone, but it's not one you can ignore in the long run. 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words 
in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, so you're right. Nobody has to think about this if he or she doesn't want to immediately. But ultimately, it's unavoidable. And so you see this, you see this wisdom. You see this wisdom of making sure you're keeping your life lined up with who Jesus is, who do people say that I am, and his words, his teaching. Those are four quick lessons as we wrap up Mark chapter 8. Thanks for joining us. Let's pray. It really does our souls probably more good than we can immediately tell. Just to take the middle of the week and take 25 minutes and focus on Jesus, our risen, reigning Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul says, transformed from one degree of glory to another. We, we want to take up our cross. We have been so captivated by the greatness and glory of Jesus, who he is and, and his words and his work, that there's nothing else to live for. And so burn those truths into our heart deeply, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, here, right here in the sanctuary, and live stream, keeping your joy. The theology of an isolated prisoner. We'll be looking at that in the morning and at night. Almost finished that series on repentance. Two more. Repentance. Wanting to is good. Knowing how is even better. So join us Sunday night at 6.30. Make Sunday complete. Join us at 6.30. God bless the church and love one another.